brought to you by the UW-Madison Political Science Department. Today, we are joined by Professor Mike Wagner to discuss the second Republican presidential primary debate that was held on Wednesday, September 27th at the Reagan National Library in Simi Valley, California. Mike Wagner is a professor at the University of Wisconsin-Madison School of Journalism and Mass Communication. His research focuses on democracy and political communications. Professor Wagner, thank you so much for joining us today, and welcome back to the 1050 Baskin Podcast. Friend of the pod, glad to be back. <laughs> we are so excited to have you back here. Let's just jump right into it. What has changed since the last debate, and what were some of your main takeaways from this debate? I think one thing that's changed is that President Biden has asserted himself in campaign conversation, both in terms of his own behavior whether that be airing television ads uh, across the country, engaging in uh, solidarity with folks who are on strike in a labor union, and also in uh, attracting attention from the Republicans who are running for president. And so more of them started to include Biden in their critiques of things they don't like uh, and started to directly implicate Biden with respect to things they might be inclined to change uh, would they be the nominee for the Republicans. One of the things that stood out to me when I was watching the debate was the frequency of the interruptions on stage. What do you make of this and how have viewers reacted to this sort of discourse? I think that people will say they were really frustrated by it. And I think many people were pretty frustrated by it. It's also the case that people tend to find that to be more compelling television. People tend to find interruptions more engaging. They systematically pay more attention when that kind of thing happens. They systematically pay more attention when people on TV are more in your face uh, than they do when people are calmer and more collected. And so it heightens excitement for the viewer. It makes it feel like the stakes are higher. It makes it feel like anything could happen and so you have to keep watching. But it's also really frustrating if you are, if you're a Republican primary voter who has decided you're not for Trump and you're looking for who your candidate is, it was pretty hard to learn what kind of president people would be based upon what we saw. And part of the reason that's true is the way that the candidates treated each other with the constant interruptions in the debate. But we saw that in 2016 and again in 2020 in debates that President Trump was involved in. And so now more and more candidates are adopting the point of view that the rules don't matter. What I need to do is talk until I get my moment. And hopefully that moment gets repeated on cable television so that other people who didn't watch the debate, which is most people, will see that moment and not other things. So they're essentially grabbing for sound bites. I think so. I think they're grabbing for the, the viral moment that gets circulated on social media and gets replayed on cable television. I think they would prefer to be the story coming out of the debate, whether it's good or bad news. I think one thing they learned in the 2016 primaries was getting attention is better than no attention. Negative attention is better than no attention. And so I think now candidates are just clamoring for attention as compared to other things. We also saw more candidates attack each other directly this time around. Can you explain for us why a candidate might see more value in attacking their opponents now as compared to maybe the first debate? 
Well, I think after the first debate, narratives began to emerge. And so it's really hard to separate people this early in a primary season, especially when the frontrunner isn't present. And so there wasn't a lot to be made by attacking people when we didn't have a great sense of how they stood. But now that there was a narrative of, oh, well, Ramaswamy sort of got known during that debate and now people are paying attention to him and Nikki Haley and Mike Pence perform better than people thought. And, uh, you know, once these narratives start to come out of the first debate, that leaves folks open to more attacks. I think that there was also the question in the first debate of whether Ron DeSantis's campaign was on the ascension or decline. He was getting negative coverage before the first debate. That kind of slowed down after his performance in that debate. So now more people might want to turn to him and, and attack him a bit as the presumptive front runner to Trump. And so I think there's, there's lots of reasons, but I think it basically boils down to we didn't really know how to think about these folks in the first debate. And now some narratives have developed and that's helped candidates figure out who do I want to try to get rid of to the best to the extent that I can and, and that sort of thing. But of course, any one debate performance isn't likely to, to make that happen unless someone performs so poorly that their funding dries up. And now switching to look at some of the policy topics, the moderators asked a series of questions about immigration reform and security at the United States southern border. Can you talk about some of the rhetoric that was displayed in those conversations and how the candidates' answers varied? Well, I I just think we saw actually not a whole lot of variance on immigration questions. I think you have Ramaswamy maybe sounding the most Trump-like in immigration rhetoric. And that's been kind of true for his whole campaign. He's sort of pitching himself as the person that if uh, Trump goes to prison, decides not to run, or drops dead, he wants to be the person who's most like Donald Trump to try to capture the people who are supporting him. And so I think his language was the most uh, similar. I think you have Nikki Haley, the governor of Dakota, and you know former Vice President Pence, all sounding somewhat similar. But... There's a pretty hard line on immigration. There's a pretty difficult path candidates who are more like former President Bush was with wanting to expand legal immigration and find pathways to citizenship. That just doesn't seem to be something that most leading contenders have on their mind. And so it was good that those questions got asked. I don't think they would have gotten asked but for who the moderators were. And so I think that was probably, you know, something that was good to get candidates on the record for so that when they answer these questions again in a general election we at least can see how consistent their answers are. Another salient issue that was discussed a lot during this debate was foreign policy issues, specifically surrounding China and Russia. Would you mind giving us an overview of what the candidates talked about and how their viewpoints differed on those issues? I would say that in general, the most coherent comments came from uh, Nikki Haley and others. I think Chris Christie was in this camp, to some degree, uh, former Vice President uh, Pence was in this camp of taking Russia as a serious threat and treating them less with admiration as former President Trump often does and as Ramaswamy sometimes does. I think that the rhetoric is strikingly different, especially given where they were doing this debate, you know, kind of on Ronald Reagan ground of really some folks being much more positive toward Russia and the kinds of Soviet-like tactics that their current leader uses in his governing and prosecution of the war in Ukraine. And so, you know, it's sort of striking to see some Republicans abandon that, which has been a hallmark of their foreign policy for decades. But I think former Ambassador Haley especially, but also to a lesser degree, former Vice President Pence and former Governor Christie were articulating 
a foreign policy that was more traditionally Republican when dealing with Russia and China to a lesser degree. It's, it's really fascinating how foreign policy toward China is being treated rhetorically as commentary about Hunter Biden, who has very little to do with uh, our country's foreign policy toward China. But just on the campaign trails, this is maybe setting aside the debate in particular, but on the campaign trail, when candidates talk about China, they often do so talking about Hunter Biden. But this doesn't tell us very much at all about how, how a president would actually engage you know, the world's most populous country, who is a nuclear power and an ally of Russia and you know, a, a huge trading partner and a huge political adversary and partner, depending upon the topic. Yeah, and they also used China to kind of tie their opponents to certain commitments. So like Nikki Haley accused Vivek right, of yeah. being a friend of China and That's you right. to kind of make an attack on him, which was really interesting to see. Yeah, I mean, she really has it out for Vivek, yeah. right? And clearly doesn't think he is prepared to be president and wants to make that clear. You know, and I think that's, you know, one of her goals is to try to prevent him from being someone who's taken seriously by Republican primary voters. My other question, too, is what is the advantage of bringing it back to Hunter Biden? I mean, for candidates, is that actually something that might give them an advantage? Is it that pervasive of an issue as Republicans play it out to be? Or is that something that's falling flat? I guess I don't know the polling on that, but it's interesting to me. It is extremely unlikely to imagine someone entering a voting booth and thinking, who's the toughest on Hunter Biden? That's who I'm voting for. Right? That, that, may, that makes literally zero sense. Right? How I'm treating uh, the president's son is not probably related to vote choice, but it is a cultural signal. And in primaries, when most partisans are not paying attention... The people who are, are the most rabid partisans, typically, the most participatory, the ones who are the most likely to give money, the ones who are most likely to talk to their friends about who they should vote for, the ones who are going to be the most active posting on social media. And if you seem soft on a thing that is regularly discussed in more conservative media circles, you're not doing yourself any favors. And so it's it's not like anybody's voting because, you know, oh, I really like what Nikki Haley had to say about Hunter Biden. Like, that's not... No, no sane person would offer that as a reason for their vote for president. But being painted as weak on the Democrats, being painted as weak on China, being tied to those things are, are things that candidates want to avoid, especially because the news media really like covering that issue. And so if a candidate expresses something that's different, journalists are going to run to that. And be like, oh, why are you different on Hunter Biden? Why are you more, why are you less aggressive about thinking, you know, that he should be prosecuted or, or, or whatever. And so that kind of thing is just, it's nonsense, but candidates know that news reporters covering these campaigns are looking for ways to differentiate candidates. And if that one comes up where it's already an issue people have opinions about, it's going to get covered quite a bit. Switching topics a little bit, there were some answers Wednesday night about LGBTQ plus rights that were a little deflective, um, I think especially from Ron DeSantis. My question is, how do these these types of answers, these deflective answers, of how does that impact rising instances of hate and rising mental health issues for LGBTQ plus folks nationwide? One thing political scientists are pretty sure about is individual opinions are deeply affected by what political elites say, especially when it comes to what political elites in their own party say. Most people don't care about that many issues. So as an example... Like lots of people deeply care about the abortion issue or deeply care 
uh, about the rights of LGBTQ individuals. Some people care deeply about capital punishment. Some people care deeply about the Me Too movement or Black Lives Matter. Folks are picking their party based upon the position the party has on these issues. But for people who don't care about those issues, they tend not to think about them. And when they're asked what it is they think, they tend to try to parrot back what elites in their party have said. And so when candidates are not directly affirming the rights of individuals to be themselves, you know, pursue education, pursue marriage, pursue government benefits, you know, based on identities that they have, or not be prevented from, you know, receiving those benefits based on identities they have. It's a signal that those people matter less. It's a signal that it's okay to discriminate against those people. It's, it's, it's a signal that the value that they are given in the mind of the party is less than the value that other folks have. And so it's absolutely correlated with rising levels of animus toward different groups. It's absolutely correlated with more violence. I don't think you can say, you know, candidate X, it is your fault that this person was attacked on the basis of their identity. I think it's probably too hard to make a direct blame in most cases. Although in some cases, people are literally saying, hey, I heard from my leader that this is what we should do, and they do it. But in general, those things are correlated. Those things are related. The way that leaders treat different classes of, of individuals and citizens uh, in the country affect people's preferences. And people's preferences then help them know whether it's okay to discriminate against those people, support violence against those people, support the denial of rights against folks. And so what elites say matters. And when there's not an open and direct affirmation of, you know, whatever group is getting asked about saying these folks have the same basic rights as people who don't fit those same identity categories, it's just a signal that it's okay to treat them differently. And so it's not surprising that we see rising attacks on women, on black individuals, on gay and transgender individuals, on social media, right? It's, we see those things, and it's it's not an opinion, it's just clear evidence that these things are happening, right? There's even an increase in the number of threats of lawmakers who express personal identities that are outside um, Governor DeSantis's, as an example. Were there any questions from the moderators on Wednesday night that surprised you or alternatively were there any subjects that you believe did not get enough attention from the candidates i wish that people in debates were asked about decisions they had made in their job to defend them so you know governor desantis you've been a governor you signed this bill why did you sign it or you know vivek has these business dealings you've dealt with these companies in these ways why did you do that how did you enter into the decision making process who did you talk to? How did you make the decision? How did you evaluate if that was a good decision? That's what presidents have to do. They have to know who to talk to. They have to decide something. They have to see if it worked and then make a dis subsequent decision on are we going to keep doing this or do something differently. And that's not what candidates get asked about. And it's not what gets covered either. There's, there's a really great study that was conducted by Doris Graber and David Weaver that looked at biographies of presidents that went into detail about how they made hard decisions and the consequences thereof and compare those factors and those things to the kinds of stuff that gets covered from the news media and covered in presidential debates, and they're not at all related to each other. And so what we learn about candidates on the campaign trail is basically, can they be consistent? Can they avoid gaffes? Can they handle pressure? But we don't really learn about how they make decisions, who they bring into that decision-making process, what their core values are, when they were willing to violate their core values, <laughs> um, are those reasons defensible or not? These aren't things that we tend to learn about in debates, and it would be great if people that were moderating them tried to get folks to describe that. Now, 
It's less newsworthy. Tell me how you make decisions seems like a softball question, but I would really like to know, is the person's view I make a gut-level decision? Or do they say I, I try to gather as much evidence as I can and talk to people who disagree with me? Those are different decision-making styles. We've had presidents who have engaged in both, and we have research about which one's, which one's a better style. I, I wouldn't mind knowing those things. It's almost like it's more of a pageant than a debate at this point. <laughs> <laughs> it's a bit of a pageant. It's a bit of a virality contest on social media in, in some ways. I don't know that there was ever a golden era where we learned tons of really valuable information, but they used to be more serious and, and they used to be more valuable in my view than they are now. On the virality, do you think some of that came through in some of the humor or attempts for humor that were made? As you painfully watch candidates try to memorize and spit back out the joke that they were taught yeah. 12 minutes before the debate started and they're trying to get it right. And yeah, yeah it's uh, sometimes it's painful to watch mm-hmm. people try to manufacture their viral moment. Some candidates are better performers than others, but it's, it's painfully awkward and it tends to create more backlash on social media than it does to tend to create positive um, stuff. Like an example would be, I think it was one of the 2012 debates between then-President Obama and, and Mitt Romney. Uh, Romney made a comment and was trying to be funny and say something about Big Bird. And he was trying, you know, hoping to make a joke, but instead it became a set of memes that made him look bad. Right, And so candidates, when they try to behave outside the mediated narrative of who they are, it tends not to go very well. And there's, there's good research on this, too. There's a great book called The Press Effect that I highly recommend people read that basically argues news reporters cover candidates in a way that gets more aggressive and more negative when candidates violate who the press have decided they are. And so it's about the Al Gore, George W. Bush campaign in 2000, and they decided you know, Bush was dumb and Gore was a liar. And so when Gore said things that weren't true, they covered it. When Bush, you know, verbally, you know, mangled the English language, they covered it. When Gore mangled the language, they didn't care. When Bush lied, they didn't care. Keep feeding us the narrative of who you are, and that's what we're going to pay attention to. And so those kinds of things are unfortunate. And as a political scientist who is also a journalism professor, I sometimes get frustrated watching some of this coverage. And to go off of that, you're talking about Bush and Gore, but recently, you know, it was argued that some of the coverage of Hillary Clinton's emails was overdone. And even a few journalists admitted that they disproportionately covered the Clinton email scandal and said that they would make changes to their coverage going forward. However, this seems to be a repeating pattern. Is there any hope for change with the news media? There's a bit of moth flame element to this, right, where, um, you know, no matter how much the moth doesn't want to fly into the fire, it's in their nature, right, to, to fly toward the light. And so, you know, there is a nature to this. Part of it is journalists want to make sure that they're not being credibly called biased. And so if a bunch of candidates for president are saying this is important and they pay no attention to it, they open themselves up to why aren't you covering this thing that these candidates say are really important. It must be because you're biased and trying to protect the Biden administration or some other, you know, thing like that. And so, you know, I think by not wanting to affect the results, sometimes they change their behavior in ways that might affect results. You think about, for example, near election day in 2016, a video of Donald Trump talking, you know, off camera to an Access Hollywood host about like how he sexually assaulted women, you know, was a big deal and was covered a lot. And then immediately, oh gosh, this might affect the results of the election. We better come back and cover Hillary's emails, you know, in, in the same way 
you know, same kind of way. And, and there's there's nice work from Katie Searles and Kevin Banda, who are political scientists, about this in an article called But Her Emails, which um, describe the news media's kind of rational approach to trying to cover these kinds of scandals in ways that serve news norms of objectivity and, and market expectations and, and those sorts of things. How, as a journalist, do you decide when not to cover a story, I guess? Because obviously, for reporters who are following day-to-day politics, there's always news and you have to sort through, you know, what is news, what isn't, what deserves follow-up coverage, what doesn't. Like, how do you make sure you don't control the narrative while also knowing that the coverage you do put out is going to have an effect on the race in some way, shape, or form? Well, the coverage ought to affect the race. Like, the coverage ought to inform people about what candidates think, and that ought to influence how people think. Um, it's not peculiar to think, I learned that this candidate supports legal abortion and this one doesn't, and that, because of my own views, that now affects how I might vote. Like, that's not weird, right? That's what journalists say they're doing, is providing us information to help us make decisions. Journalists, on the one hand, want to provide us information to help us make decisions, and on the other hand, not unfairly cover some issues and not others, or characterize issues in, one, in, in ways that benefit one side or the other. And it's really difficult, and lots of factors go into how journalists cover things. One is that elite journalists tend to operate as a pack. We've known this since the 1970s when we have uh, Timothy Krauss chronicling the campaign trail, literally watching reporters looking over the shoulder of Johnny Apple of the New York Times to see what he was writing as his lead so that they would know what to say the important thing that happened today was. We all go to the same speech, we all watch it, well, what does the Times say? And the reason they did that is because if they went out on their own and thought, I think this other thing is important, their editor would call and say, why is it that you're smarter than Johnny Apple of the New York Times? Why aren't you covering the thing that they're saying is important? And so part of what happens is journalists operate as a pack and collectively determine this is the message of the day, this is what's important. Part of what happens is journalists have a sense of what it is that's newsworthy, right? And sometimes candidates are trying to get attention for things and journalists don't want to just give it to them because the candidates say so, right? They're exercising their own sense of news values of, regarding what to cover. They don't want to cover th- the same thing over and over and over. They don't think that's serving their audience. They want to figure out what's new, what's changed, what's different. These are biases journalists have towards what's new. And so a candidate who's super consistent is less exciting to cover. Uh, and then they might start to get negative coverage of, oh, they're scripted. They're too controlled. But maybe you want a candidate who thinks the same thing on Wednesday that they thought on Tuesday unless they learn something new in between, right? And so it's a challenge, right? There's professional norms, there's market-based norms. They're also stuck with what the candidates say. You could write a bunch of stories saying, we think these issues are important and today the candidates didn't talk about them. Probably can't do that very many times without getting a lot of complaints from the candidates on the campaign trail and their supporters and the party that you're criticizing when they're not talking about those things. And so whenever journalists try to assert themselves they open themselves up to accusations of bias. And most journalists don't want to be accused of being biased. They want to be thought of as being fair and thorough and objective and fact-based. And it's just, it's really complicated. And if it was easy to do, there would be, more people would be doing it. Shifting gears a little bit, how have the Democrats been framing this debate? And more generally, what is sort of the MO of the defending party when it comes to debate season? So usually the party in charge is highlighting what's gone well under their reign, right? (laughs) Lynn Vavrick has a great book about this, where basically the argument is that if the economy is good, the incumbent talks about the economy. (laughs) And if the economy is bad, the incumbent talks about anything else, (laughs) right? (laughs) 
Uh, they're trying to you know, bring attention to the things that are going well and, and divert attention away from things that aren't going so well in the country. Or at least divert attention away from things that are perceived as not going well. So if the economy is growing but people think the economy is bad, they can choose to try to hammer home the evidence that the economy is growing or they can try not to fight that perception and move on to something else. Biden has been different than most incumbents in this regard in that the economy's had a remarkable recovery from COVID. Unemployment is extraordinarily low. Inflation has been dropping generally and been pretty well corralled. There have been a ton of infrastructure projects. He's been an enormously successful president, especially in divided government. And instead, he's really focusing on two things, democracy and abortion. And in the speech he gave earlier in the week of the second debate, he basically made an argument that, you know, Donald Trump Republicans are putting democracy at risk. And part of his argument for re-election is I am the last exit to democracy that we have. And if you don't take this exit, we're on a road to something else, something more authoritarian. And the part of his argument is we're running to save democracy. And then the other argument is we're running to reestablish a reproductive rights at a federal level. And so those are the two things he's talking about the most on the campaign trail. My question too is how are Democrats navigating economics messaging? Biden's been hammering down on this economic message mm-hmm. of Bidenomics. Is that messaging working and how are well, I don't think the messaging is I don't think the messaging is working, but I think uh. the actual policies are, are broadly working. More people are working, more people are making more money, more people are making way above a minimum the federal minimum wage. Inflation is has been held or dropping. Uh, lots of very good things happening in the economy. There continues to be growing inequality from the very top and the very bottom. That that's still getting worse. Uh, and so that's a problem. Although I wouldn't say that's a problem with Bidenomics. I would say that's a problem with American economics and has been true for at least 50 years and getting worse mostly over that course of that time. But the messaging has not been good. Joe Biden's not a, a strong deliverer of successful economic news. He, he's not great at delivering that message and it hasn't been landing in the, in the public. Do you think that calling something Bidenomics falls under the curse of, say, Obamacare, of giving it a name that includes... But I think Biden is trying, I mean, Reaganomics was another example of this that yeah. was more positive uh, generally for President Reagan. Obama reframed the issue and started adopting it for the first few years of the Affordable Care Act. Obamacare was a negative term, and he eventually, outwardly and publicly, was like, it sounds like Obamacare is, I'm for that, let's talk about it, and just started using the phrase himself, which took a little bit of the sting out of it. And so I think Biden has learned from that and is trying to do so before it becomes a negative term. And so I, I think he's actually trying to capture that term on his own terms so that it's not inherently thought of as something negative. Now, of course, partisans are going to have a really different view. Like most Republicans will hear the word Bidenomics and, and roll their eyes and think, oh, no, this is terrible. And most Democrats will hear the phrase and either think that doesn't sound super scintillating, but I'm been, I favor it as compared to the alternative. Uh, which is also something Biden is really into saying, which is don't compare me to the almighty, compare me to the alternative. And in his view, you know, the alternative is Donald Trump. And in his view, Trump is an authoritarian, racist, sexist monster who is set to ruin the country. Why may the Biden team be focusing in on the economy now when it's questionable whether or not that that messaging is being received, regardless of whether or not the economy is getting better, which, I mean, indicators say it is. But if it's not being received, why focus in on that message so strongly ahead of 2024 and our Republican candidates going to go after that? They'll certainly talk about the economy and they'll certainly frame it as something that's negative. Joe Biden is a very adept and very shrewd politician and has been for several decades. He's almost always positioned himself in the middle of the distribution of Democrats in the Senate. 
So he's kind of always moved to always kind of try to be relatively in the middle of, of, of Senate Democrats. Not always, but, but relatively. And he has seen two presidents in the last roughly 40 or 35 years lose in their first term George H.W. Bush during an economic recession and Donald Trump when the economy was tanking during COVID. And he has learned the lesson that the economy is a driver of presidential vote. And so he's going to spend some time talking about the economy. He's going to spend some time trying to make sure that a narrative doesn't get developed that he is like the two presidents who have been one-termers in recent memory. He's going to talk about that issue. He also knows that abortion is going to be a huge motivator for younger voters and for strong Democrats. But they weren't voting for Donald Trump anyway. There's also the case that the abortion issue is a motivator for many suburban women who often will vote for Republicans. And so it'll clearly be the case that they talk about that issue. It was really successful for them in Wisconsin uh, in 2020. It was successful in Wisconsin again in the state Supreme Court race. And so that's an issue that they know appeals to swing voters in swing states. But the economy is is a critically important issue in every presidential election, especially when most of the objective indicators are pretty good. They're not going to miss the opportunity to try to remind people of that. Is there anything else that you want to talk about regarding this week's debate that we haven't talked about yet? I think it's interesting that I think the person who's performed the best across the two debates is Nikki Haley, and she hasn't really seen a bump so far coming out of that, that might take a little while to materialize. And again, most people are not like us. They're not watching the debate, nor are they seeking coverage about the debate. It's not on their radar. It's a fall before the next election. We're more than a year away. Most people are not clued in to this. And so it's not surprising maybe that she hasn't been able to affect her fortunes positively. But you know, I'm a little surprised in that she's performed well. She's performed well on issues that Republicans have tended to be favorably evaluated on by the public related to you know foreign policy kinds of questions. And she hasn't really been able to move the needle for her. I think Pence had a good first debate and not such a great second debate. I think Ramaswamy was probably better in the first debate than the second debate. To me, it's DeSantis, Haley, and Trump seem to be the ones who have the best chance, but not in that order. Trump, I would say, of course, has the best chance by far of, of being the nominee. And he hasn't been to any debate yet. And by not showing up, it sort of treats it like a, a junior varsity debate. Would it be fair to say that this is functioning as a semi-VP debate or running mate debate? Under more traditional circumstances, I would say yes, but Trump is going to pick someone he thinks is loyal to him, mm-hmm. not who he thinks is the most qualified to be president if he became incapacitated. He was a little more strategic, I think, in his first election where he thought, I think, it was important to pick someone who had a strong record on especially the more cultural issues in the Republican Party, which Trump did not have a strong record on. If you go back and look at transcripts of the early primary debates, Trump said nice things about Planned Parenthood, which Republicans do not do in uh, presidential debates. He took no flack for it, <laughs> essentially, uh, from uh, Republicans in the in the primary. And, and so I think there was thought, and I think he acquiesced to this, that he needed a traditional politician who was strong on Republican cultural conservatism in his first election. I don't think he thinks he needs that now. He's been the president. He's shown he can do it. I think that that is a great note to end this conversation on. But before you leave us today, we like to end our episodes on a lighter note. And we did a little bit of Twitter digging for this question. Are you ready? I'm ready. On Wednesday, September 27th, the night of the debate, the UW-Madison School of Journalism and Mass Communication put out a poll asking which faculty member we would like to see in a flamingo costume. The contest was between you, 
Professor Katie Culver, who we also recently had on the pod, Professor Stacy Forster, and Professor Doug McLeod. And you won with nearly 40% of the vote. <laughs> Can you tell us more about the inspiration behind this poll and what you plan to do now that you have earned this impressive and historic nomination? Yes, I can. So um, the university has a uh, big fundraising day called Fill the Hill. And when people give money, uh, the hill gets filled with flamingos that are the visual representation of how much money folks have donated to the university. And so as part of our engagement in Fill the Hill, uh, Stacy, Doug, Katie, and I agreed that whoever won the vote would wear that costume and kind of, you know, have photographic evidence thereof, uh, you know, for, for Fill the Hill. Luckily, this is more like an electoral college set of rules, and so there was also a poll on Instagram, and they were added together. And thankfully, I lost by enough on Instagram that I think I lost by two votes overall. I dominated Twitter by many points, but I lost Instagram by seven points. But since there were more voters on Instagram, Instagram was California. Twitter was Michigan, you know, important but not as important. And so I overall lost the election, and Doug McLeod actually will have to wear the oh, um, wow. flamingo costume. I immediately emailed our department administrator to say that I wanted to formally contest this. This was fake news. I clearly won on Twitter. Something's mm-hmm. being taken from me on Instagram. Totally not fair. I, I, I was, you know, not going to accept the results. And then I realized, wait a minute, I don't have to wear a flamingo costume. I absolutely concede. I was sad to lose to Doug. <laughs> I hope he enjoys the costume. Yeah. As a Doug voter, this is huge news for me. <laughs> I'm very excited. The rules of the game matter. You gotta win. You gotta win uh, across the uh, platform. I'm more Twitter than Insta, sadly. We saw Katie's performance mm-hmm. in the flamingo costume. Personally, mm-hmm. I'd say it was pretty good. Oh yeah, stretching. I, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I definitely cracked up that morning. But mm-hmm. do we think Doug can be Katie in the flamingo costume? Doug is a very good sport, and so I. I think that it'll be very satisfying to see him in that costume. And when can we see Doug in the flamingo costume, mm-hmm. if you know? I, I think I think we'll start to see the evidence of it on the Fill the Hill days. Although he's asked to do the, the photos very early in the morning so no one's around on campus, which just makes me want to be there more. All right, thank you so much, Professor Wagner, hey, for joining us today, and we hope to see you soon as a friend of the pod.